0: Welcome to Miracles in Recovery with Ray Lynch. If you are one of the millions of people facing addiction issues or the loved one of someone who is, we're here to help and to discuss solutions. Hope is in your corner. Now, here's your host, Ray Lynch.
1: Welcome back to Miracles in Recovery. like the lovely lady said at the beginning. My name is Ray Lynch, and in the studio I have Ellen Arnold. She is with me. Hello and, everyone. And we also have my cat Pepsi laying on the <laughs> desk tonight. So Pepsi's holding down the. fort. <laughs> Pepsi's holding down the fort. So this is uh, July 3rd. and Saturday night we had a um, we had like a block party over here in the in the neighborhood. And I thought, you know, I mean, I thought it was, I heard, like, bumping, like, noise during the day. And then I heard, like, they had, like real fireworks in the neighborhood oh, really? here. Almost like what Heisinger used to do. Yeah. Yeah. It was like crazy. I was like, what? That's because, kind of dangerous, isn't it? Uh very much so. Very much so. I mean right out on right out on the street here. I, I you know at least he did it over the water. If they would have done it out in the in the lake here, which is right next door, that would have been something. But like right in the middle of the street, I don't know. Yeah, you you know,
2: know, I, I heard I heard some fireworks across the canal. You know, we live on the water
1: temporarily yeah. and
2: mm-hmm. I heard fireworks across the canal, and at first, you know, because there have been so many shootings lately, I was wondering if it was gunshots, I got to start wondering right. if I need to duck.
1: Right, right. Well, let's jump right into the show. We have uh, an old friend uh, who haven't, we haven't spoken to for... Gosh, probably five years. Five years, four or five years anyway. Her name is Amy Graves, and she is the founder of... A nonprofit group, Get Prescription Drugs Off the Street Society. Ultimately, originally, I think it was founded in Nova Scotia, but she just shared with us that she moved to Alberta, Canada. So she uh, isn't sharing our Independence Day, but um, I'm sure she's here with in spirit. So. Um, I guess a lot has happened over the past 5 years then since we have spoken to you. So why don't we why don't we share with the audience a little bit about what motivated you to get that um that nonprofit up and going? I know that I know that you lost your brother and and that motivated you to do a lot of things um addiction wise, but share a little bit about your journey with with um all the legal aspects of it going along as well.
3: Sure, um In March 2011, uh, that's when my life changed and my whole family's life changed um, as we realized that we had lost um, my brother Joshua. Uh, Initially, we had no idea that it was related to drugs. Um, I just spoken to my brother that night. He had just moved back um, from working away. We were excited to have him back with uh, family close to home we had uh meant to have a social gathering at a cottage that night and he messaged me saying i'm so sorry i'm just so tired from work i'm not going to be able to travel the hour away there's always next time and um those are the last words he uh ever said to me um that night he uh went to a party um nothing too crazy i guess it was a celebration for somebody's birthday. That. Um, a girl he was dating. Uh, they stopped to make an appearance and say hello before going back home. And at that party, a prescription painkiller called hydromorphone was um being distributed uh, by an alleged uh, drug dealer. Um, my brother, uh, come to find out after, had experimented um, and ingested some of this painkiller. Um, mixing it also with some alcohol. He went to sleep that night, and he just never woke up. Um, but we didn't realize all of that information till long after the fact because originally it was just he went to sleep, he never woke up, and then we started hearing rumors in the community that there had been um, a drug dealer at the party and had been distributing this painkiller to different people. Um, so that's when I went to our RCMP, which is the Federal Police Agency in Canada, and asked if they were questioning people or investigating this as if um, what people were saying was true, then this was a danger. And, you know, I, I felt like if my brother had died in any other way, uh, even a workplace accident, car accident, police would be investigating, but due to the stigma of drug mm-hmm. use... Mm-hmm. Um, it was just kind of like I felt like they were saying, you know, it w- the world was done a favor. There was no um, empathy, and actually, um, they said, you know, we have no toxicology reports back. We can't do anything. So for six months, it was just we had no answers, knew nothing,
1: or It took for six toxicology. months for them to get. It six took months. six months. <laughs> wow. Yes. Why did it take that long? Like, what was their what was the reasoning behind that?
3: Uh, just the medical examiner's office. That's how long at that time. Um, that process took. So for six months, it was just basically community gossip, um, hearing different stories. But during that six months, um, whenever someone emailed me or I tried to do everything through writing, um, there was pictures of the party posted on Facebook. All of this stuff, information I accumulated over the six months, waiting for this toxicology thinking, um if it does come back, this was the cause of my brother's death, and the police will investigate and do their due mm-hmm. diligence. Um, so the toxicology came back, found out that it was a uh, painkiller hydromorphone, and that's when I called the police and said, see, uh, the information I got was right. Are you guys going to go talk to some people now and you know, interview this drug dealer, see if he's still... You know, this is, more people Active. will die. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they said, no, your brother was a big boy. He made a choice. And How old choice was your brother? To take drugs. Uh, he was 21.
1: He was 21. Oh, he was 21. So, yeah, a very well, old person. He is an person. adult. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, technically, he's technically, he's a guy. At 21, he's definitely not an adult. I wasn't. No, oh, I don't think anybody is. Yeah.
3: Even if you're 40 years old, like I said, let's say it was drinking and driving, the whole right. poor choice mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people make poor choices, whether, whether they're jaywalking across the street, um, drinking and driving, uh, I don't know, snowboarding down the Rockies and go off the path. Like, there's so many risky behaviors we do in our lives that don't have the stigma attached um, that police would at least investigate and seem concerned about how this happened. Um, true, my brother too. Yeah, he had no history, Uh, not that it matters. Even if he did have a history of drug use, even if he did have a criminal record, I still feel that everybody deserves um, empathy and to be treated like a human. But there wasn't even that motivation that this was something um, common for Joshua, and it was really disturbing to our family that nobody seemed to care uh, how a 21-year-old was found dead on a couch and just went to sleep and never woke up.
2: Yeah, that's, um, that's just horrific. You know. And so, did they never investigate?
3: Well, that's when I went up through the chain of command within the police agency and basically reached the top of that district and was told, you know, there's nothing we're going to do, the case is closed. And I said, well, how do I file a formal complaint? And they said, I still remember to this day, Miss Graves, you can, but you'll be the first one to, you know, make this type of complaint against us. And I said, great, I am first for everything. I don't mind having that title. And so I took the information, <laughs> formed a public complaint, and then another, roughly six months later, after an outside agency investigated, um, the police apologized, released a formal apology to my family um, with the information that the other officers, um, gathered they laid charges of criminal negligence causing death against the alleged drug dealer and um, trafficking in the controlled substance hydromorphone
1: I, I it just it just baffles me that and you hear this a lot where you know the the police or or whoever the um, reporting uh, department or, or service is they they always bark at like, assistance until they're backed into a corner. And then they're like, oh, well, we're sorry. Well, guess what? We're sorry. You just blew a year of our life trying to, you know, trying to deal with this grief, for one, and two, try to get some kind of answer. And, and three, not get only,
2: this person off yeah, the streets,
1: I mean, please. Was it found out that anyone, I mean, I you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, maybe, but was it found out that he was around anyone else that ultimately died?
3: Um, nothing directly related, but... During the trial, there was testimony that he had given this painkiller to other people at this party, even people who were underage. Um, wow. And lots of people fell ill. Um, there was testimony that there was other individuals like were getting sick in a bedroom all night and people had to watch over them. So nobody else um, from that incident uh, died that I'm aware of, but... There was a great possibility for moral harm. And the police were called to that house by a concerned neighbor twice that evening saying oh. that they thought there was underage drinking going on and, you know, dangerous behavior, um, which so, they knocked on the door, talked to somebody, and left. That was another part of my my complaint.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So what was he ultimately arrested for?
3: Um, criminal negligence, causing death, and trafficking hydromorphone. But he was acquitted. Um, he oh, charges. Yes, he got off on everything, which, of course, I'm just I was disappointed at the time. but really, my whole motivation was not for revenge per se. It was that my brother was a human being, and his life mattered. And nobody seemed to care, especially in like enforcement, that there was somebody out there who was a threat to other people's lives. And just the way they went about the investigation and talking to my family. Um basically I felt like they were insinuating my brother deserved it. Um my brother did make a poor choice by experimenting with this painkiller, but I think Right, the but dealer, nobody, nobody
2: dealer, Yeah, but how, how many but, kids do that?
3: Yeah.
1: A lot of kids do that and you know um, and then but you know something we we also I mean granted this was in 2011, 2012 you yeah. said, 2011. Yeah. Um you know that's that's quite a few years ago, but even in 2011, I think we were already hardened to to addiction. You know what I mean? Because yeah, like we've when had I the when I got mill
2: crisis down here right, and, when and I got across clean, the U.S. It
1: was it was like raw. It was open, but it was it was a lot of illicit drugs at the time. Now it's now it's over the counter, quote unquote drugs that these people are overdosing and dying on. And I think what we as a society, we talked about this last week, we as a society kind of like throw our blinders up and just and just walk through. And, and I think sadly, what happens is, is that police departments and paramedics and fire departments and, and all these services, these medical services, they see it hourly, and Not, they get not anymore, really, it's not really weekly anymore, it's hourly. On it. And they get burnt out, and they, you know, they... And they, they get
2: hardened to the, the yeah, you know, the human that's suffering That's not an excuse, it's no, absolutely not an excuse to it, it, act I that think way, but... they would have to, in some ways, have to harden themselves to it, because if you're seeing this every hour of every right. day that you're on the job, right. I can't even begin to imagine no, I know. how awful that must be, but they're getting to the point where they just are in a let them die mode, and there are towns... There's one in Ohio in particular that are saying, if you call us for an overdose, we might get there and we might not.
1: Yeah, but you know, let somebody, you know, let them say that in public, which they did. They've done. And let someone's child or loved one die and they didn't make it there in time. They're in so much trouble. I mean, everybody that wants to run their mouth and say, I mean, I was a firefighter. Right. I was I was a first responder. Fortunately enough, I was also a recovering addict. So I had compassion for that mm-hmm. individual that was on the ground. That was me before. Um and I would pull up to the scene and ultimately there were maybe seven or eight other people that were in different levels of compassion. Yeah. And you know, I can understand where they say, you know. Enough is enough. Let them go. But that's not what you're being paid for. No. You know, and the, and the police and Amy's situation, you know, that is not what they're being paid for. First and foremost, they take an oath. And they say to protect and serve, which somehow gets, like, got taken out of that. But to protect and to serve absolutely did no justice to her and her family because they turned their back on her well, for no it, other and, way to put it. And just
2: think, Amy, if you hadn't fought for this nothing would have ever been done.
3: Certainly, and actually, um, I, I received a lot of backlash from my community. Either people were for this or against it. It was it, it, This all occurred in a very small town. Yeah. And, you know, I would hear, they're just kids having fun, they're just, you know, partying. Drug trafficking is not, it's a victimless crime, but it's really not a victimless oh, crime, it's not. first of all. My no. brother is a result of that. And then after this alleged trafficker was, acquitted within 6 months he's actually in federal prison now but for um, a murder of a homeless man who he thought was an informant <laughs> and Oh my his gosh. Business. So he literally So lit this a was a very dangerous fire. individual.
2: This was a yes. very dangerous individual and I can't believe he actually got acquitted. You have to wonder if he is somehow connected, you know, mm-hmm. with law enforcement. In, in ways that aid his business or aided his well, business. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, you, you know, that's the, I guess that's a thought too. But, you know, it's just... Society, we're a broken society, and you know, sadly, we don't care about our neighbor as much as we should. You know, Um, I think Donna Reed needs to come back on TV so that you know, (laughs) and and that was what that just flew right over Amy's head. Yeah, yeah, she's too young to know.
2: Donna Reed was a wonderful housewife who, you know, life was just great for everybody.
3: Okay, (laughs) it was (laughs) like a
2: '60s TV show.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, and I don't think arresting our way out of this is going to solve the problem by any means. No. Um, I don't think putting people who are suffering from substance use in jail is going to fix them. But people who are financially motivated and capitalizing off of other people's substance use issues, those are the people, I think, that deserve um, to be taken out of the streets and so that they can't hurt the public anymore until, you know we figure out why they're doing what they're doing, and some people will just continue to do it, but I I don't think you can just turn your back and say, oh, well, they're only hurting people who use drugs, and those people deserve it. That type of mentality is what really, really bothers me. I don't think, you know, we can incarcerate ourselves out of this issue, but the stigma associated with the people who are being harmed by high-level traffickers, um, that's what bothers me, that it's okay for these people to be, uh, you know overdosing and their families to be going through this. It's the stigma attached to overdose deaths that, that really, really bothered me in that situation.
1: Right. You know, but the thing, the thing about it is is being a, being an addict and sitting in this chair and, and having an understanding about uh, um, the disease at time mean, I, I, I don't even like using the word disease when I say this, but having an understanding of the mindset and, and actively, dealing on a daily basis with the people who bought and sold it and, and, and provided it to me, they were just as, if not more sick. One, for the drugs, two, for the money, and three, you know, just just for that environment. And, and sadly enough, when you get individuals who try it once or twice and sadly don't make it out, um, they become... Definitely a victim of that of that um, uh, way of life, because that way of life is happening, and I willfully walked into it. And the gentleman that was—I say gentleman, but the guy that was selling it to me—walked into it as well, fully knowing the parameters of the game. The the guy that was selling it fully knew. That somebody was going to die with what he sold.
2: And he didn't care.
1: And he didn't care. And, you know, so, and the famous last words of an addict is, is one, it'll never happen to me. And two, I'm not hurting anyone but myself. We forget that we have our families, we have our community, we have our nation, that we're, that we're laying down and saying you know i don't care anything about what except what it is that i want we need to go to commercial now right now when we come back we'll pick it up on the other side thank you
4: your life your health your network You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reish. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin, breast cancer survivors and advocates. They help by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bally Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Miracles in Recovery. To reach the program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to ray at miraclesinrecovery.org. Now back to this week's show.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We have Amy Graves on the line. She is the founder of Get Prescription Drugs Off the Get Prescription Drugs Off the Street Society. Amy, if you would, could you please um, belt out your uh, social media? so people can look at you on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is that you do?
3: Sure, um, you can find us on Facebook. Um, If you just, uh, in your search bar, type in Get Prescription Drugs Off the Street Society or Facebook.com slash G-P-D-O-T-S the acronym for Get Prescription Drugs Off the Street Society. You can find us. Um, we're on there every day engaging with the public, sharing what we do. Uh, we also have Twitter. Um, our handle's at dot. so G-P-D-O-T-S. Um, again, very active on Twitter.
1: <laughs> okay. Can you give me those initials again?
3: Sure. It's
1: you said it a little bit too quick. Somebody's trying to write it down out there. G-P-D-O-T-S. G-P-DOTS. Yes, and that's
3: our handle on both Facebook and Twitter.
1: Okay, so just for everyone, phone lines are open. Dial 866-472-5792. You can share your experiences if you've had any like Amy. Or maybe you can just open up a conversation about something else. I mean, we're open to hear whatever it is that you want to talk about. Um, Now we're talking about um, the tragedy of, of losing... Lives, and you know, like there's there's cities we, we see on the news all the time. You know, they attack it. Attack seems to attack different cities at different times. And I don't know if the fentanyl and carfentanil end up going in like different directions. But like there'd be a city in Cincinnati where a week long they're losing nine to, nine yeah. to twenty two people a day, and then it's Cleveland, and then it's Pittsburgh, and then it's. So yeah. I don't know if they're not necessarily. Grouping all the numbers together and saying 700,000 children are dying a day in this city, but I mean, if you if you take it city by city and you and you and it's 22, how many people a day is that 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 we're losing from addiction? 144 a day. It's 144, 144 nationally? 144
2: a day. Now, there are, there are numbers from the CDC that yeah. make it 72, which is bad enough, but um, most of the groups that are really truly keeping track of this say it's 144 a day, and they, they are profiling one person a day who has died just to let people know they're more than their disease, they're more than their addiction. These are These were, you know, somebody's daughter, son, husband, brother, you know, mm-hmm. They're people. and and it it really needs to, you know we need to have a a change in the way that people think in the world about the disease of addiction. and And maybe that will be one mm. of the things that comes out of this pandemic because that's really what we've got. And you know the fact that we're talking to somebody from from Canada, from another country, I mean, obviously, a similar country to ours is right you know adjacent too, but they have a different government. They have different, different things going on there and the same things are happening there exactly as we see happening here
1: so let me so let me ask you well amy with with you being vocal with, you know with your with your nonprofit, um what steps have you taken or you know as a society what has changed from the day that you found out your brother had passed until today like what has changed within your country um awareness wise that sure. you're aware of?
3: um There has been a lot of changes, um, but far too slow. And I feel like government dragged their heels on the prescription opioid epidemic, not wanting to fully acknowledge that doctors and big pharma were causing this much harm. And then when organized crime brought in illicit fentanyl starting, you know, four years ago, all of a sudden people started to take notice. Um, And Well, they had to, I guess, because the death spiked... Um, dramatically. Um, and that's when r- the real changes started to be implemented. Um, our group advocated to have just something as simple as um, prescription drugs and opioids added to um, the education curriculum. So students would be educated on the drugs that are, they're faced with today. Uh, the drug education was so out of date. So that's something that we were successful Um, and lobbying for. Um, Some of the big changes uh, countrywide, I guess, would be the removal of prescription status for naloxone and getting that out at no cost. For instance, in Alberta, um, the government covers that. You can get it from any pharmacy free of charge, um, no ID required, as many kits as you need um, at over 90 locations. With,
1: so you can just walk province. up to the counter. You can walk up to the Literally. counter and say, can I have 10 of them?
3: I don't know if they give you 10 at a time, but I, I would say within reason. You could go back the next day and say you used your kit and you need another. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, there's no restrictions on on the naloxone kit. Some provinces have better access than others, but you anyone can walk up to any pharmacy um, and get a kit for themselves. It's
1: now, just where is that, where is that subsidized government. from? Where is, where is um, that subsidized from? How, do, how, do, how is that paid for? Our federal government,
3: our lovely socialized health care here. <laughs> um, <laughs> we pay taxes, and it goes into a huge health care um, budget. And this has come out, like, actually, uh, the federal government gave each province um, an opportunity to apply for additional funds. Uh, emergency funds to deal with the opioid crisis in each province. And Alberta has just come up with uh, $53 million just as a province yeah. to um, give people, to remove the wait list for addiction treatment and to have accessible naloxone for everybody. So there's been big steps. We also have a federal good Samaritan law. So if you call 911 in the event yeah. of an overdose and you have drugs in your possession, um, you you won't be charged. Uh, trafficking and stuff like that, higher level crimes, still would be prosecuted. But simply drug possession, people are afraid to call the police because they might get in trouble right. for
0: using right. as well. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah.
3: so that's, people
2: are dying that's, for that exactly. reason as well.
1: Yeah, I mean yeah, we have, we have that we have that as we well. We have that but, here,
2: but it's a state yeah. by state thing, I think. Yeah.
1: No, I no I think it's I I, I think it's 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 um for everything so i want to say it's federal because it's for like if you choose to stop and help somebody on the street that Mm -hmm. gets into an accident you're covered by the good samaritan law as well as an addict who brings someone to the hospital or calls on someone um you're free and clear as that as well you can't be you can't have you know 82 pounds of heroin in your house, no, yeah. but, no, but if, and, they, know,
2: if they find yeah. some, th- this happened to somebody I know, called 911 because someone was overdosing in the home, mm-hmm. and when the cops got there, they found paraphernalia and some heroin, and they said, unless he tests dirty, you know, meaning the person who was overdosing, you are going to be arrested. That's fair. And the guy tested dirty, so the other person didn't get arrested,
1: yeah. but otherwise they would have been, which... Well, I mean, that's fair. I mean, why, but why would the guy, why would they be called to the house with somebody overdosing if he didn't test? Yeah. Well, who knows? I don't know,
3: but yeah. I would rather... Yeah. They, yeah. they like, have to if, know. Yeah. If my loved one was overdosing and using drugs with someone, I would rather, like, I would rather my loved one alive and the person... They were using with not be prosecuted, absolutely. then right. that's oh, just absolutely. letting my loved yeah. ones die. It's like and a what a lesser of two evils kind of thing in that in that I'll situation. Look. I
2: feel like. I don't know that anybody who's using should be prosecuted, per se. I think more they you know they need help more than they need to be locked away.
1: Yeah, have to oh, work. I, I agree. Yeah, and, no, and, I, and, and I wholeheartedly agree because I've been in situations where. Um, you know, friendship friendship took over, and it was like this was even before that, and it was like I don't care, I'm I'm not leaving my friend in a right. dumpster, you know, um, I'll I will pay the price to get my friend to the hospital, but even at the local hospital back then, they would just take him. And have you leave? They would yeah. just go. They would just say go, and and the individual. <laughs> I was one of those individuals, and you know, when you woke up, you had a you know a policeman that wanted to talk to you, but it wasn't anything that was really, um, you know, so.
2: They weren't going to grab you, lock you no. up
1: No, I mean I don't know if the, I don't know I don't know what the right answer with that is. You know, you hear that big the big uproar about about knocking and and you know I don't like you know the three strike rule and this that the other thing and and I don't know what the right answer is, but I do know that when I was out there active, I was not intentionally trying to overdose. I was, but I I was not in intentionally saying, I'm going to do this because I know I'm going to overdose, and I know the police are going to be there, and I know they're going to give me no and, and I know I'm going to be high. okay. I was just trying to you know. be, I was i was in gear, yeah. is what I was. I was in gear. And, you know, for someone who is an official in a city to pass judgment and say, that's your third time?
0: Yeah. Too well, bad. What are we
1: going to walk, walk around with choppies and, like, like put... It, like, I, I ticks just, on, I so you just can't, can't do that.
2: Well, and they, they're saying that people don't pay for it, and that is that is categorically untrue. If you are transported to the hospital no. and you have any kind of insurance, your insurance is going to pay for that. Well, uh, and Amy if you don't, that, they're going to go after some kind of indigent care for you. Yeah. Now, I don't know that that works a lot of times. In, in, in 30-something states, you know, there's no Medicaid help. It's well, so scary success. to me.
3: I can't even imagine as a Canadian who's never had to worry about that. Our system's not perfect, far from it, but I can't imagine, I was reading a, an article, I forget from what state, earlier, and it was a doctor's opinion and how many times he has had you know someone come in un- un- unconscious from an opioid overdose administered mm-hmm. Narcan and then that person leaps off a table and runs out of the hospital because they don't want to be billed or have their family be billed and don't have insurance. I just can't imagine oh, yeah. that it, being a factor. You know something?
1: I, I don't necessarily think he's leaping off the table and thinking about his insurance. No, he's,
0: he's going I to get to, high.
1: I wanted to run. As soon as I woke up and I knew that I was in the hospital, my feet were on the floor ready to go. Yeah, but, and, well, and the, the
2: Narcan has knocked yeah.
1: the high out of him. Yeah. they and, have and to go back out and get high. Quick. You're in panic. You're, you're immediately out no. you know, you're in panic. So, you know, it, it's all well and good for, uh, I want to I say, passerbys to say, uh, you know, he wants to run out of the hospital because he doesn't want to pay. No, you're not going to get money out of him anyway. If if you put a medicine cabinet in front of him, he's going to run 10 feet.
2: Yeah. You know See what the I mean? Medicine cabinet. So, <laughs> <laughs> But but there is a huge problem with yeah. the fact that most addicts don't have insurance so they are there is no treatment available for them at all and That's even so if scary. they do have insurance a lot of the treatment is outpatient which is hopelessly ineffective for, you know, a hardcore opiate addict or opioid addict. It's just and not don't enough. do you think,
3: though, that ends up costing the states more money to have somebody in active addiction and not um, being of able course. to engage in society like somebody else and um, rather than pay, you know, have that funded through? I just, it's so hard for me to wrap my brain around because I've only Lived in Canada. This is all I know. Our healthcare system, where no matter what ailment, either, like if someone suffers from diabetes and they refuse to stop drinking Pepsi, do you take their insulin away after the third time you catch them drinking Pepsi, or say, you know, this person's a no, strange, yeah, No, yeah, no, bad you, you don't.
1: <laughs> no, you you don't. But you but you do you do try to see somebody somebody in that state of mind. Um, you can sit down and have some, hopefully, kind of conversation with them. An addict isn't going to come in and talk to a doctor. An active addict is not going to stop what he's doing and sit and have a doctor counsel him on shoulda, coulda, woulda. No, Whereas somebody with
2: the door somebody with cancer can. or diabetes
1: will have that common sense reality to be able to sit down. Um, and that's where I see the problem of... Um, Individuals not wanting to reach out because it's such a shunned society, or they we shun ourselves. We we we.
2: Well, it's a shunned segment of society. Anyone who has this disease, because let's face it, they act horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in your active disease, you're stealing, you're lying, you're sneaking around. You know, you're doing everything possible to alienate people who, you know, who don't have the disease and, and, you know, for a family member, for example, when mine's sick, it took a long time for me to wrap my head around the fact that that the the person that I knew had been consumed completely by this disease and what I was left with was basically a shark who was looking to get high, no matter what the consequence. There was no thought beyond I've got to get high. None. (laughs) And that's very hard to deal with.
3: For sure. And one of the reasons why um, our federal government recently has loosened the restrictions on safe consumption sites is for those people, like you said, who are not mentally prepared to engage in an active treatment plan or um, go down that route. You're establishing a relationship with healthcare professionals, even though you're still actively using you build these trusting relationships in a safe environment with people who know when you say you're ready where you need to go and are there to support you. And I always say you can't get someone in treatment if they're dead. So this is a way to keep that person alive and build positive, supportive relationships with pro-social supports. And then when they say, I'm ready or I'm done with this, and maybe they won't, but um, I don't feel like you can give up on those people. And also, safe consumption sites reduce the, the spread of infectious disease, um, reduce needles and other paraphernalia, you know, in the communities, on the streets. Um, when I, my brother first died, like, I, was, I had no idea about this world. I had no idea um, about this side of things. And even five years ago, it was hard for me to wrap my head around how... Um, supporting someone in using was helping them, but through my journey with advocacy, meeting so many people, working with people who are harmfully involved, um, it, it took a long time for me to educate myself and understand it, but it really is a healthcare service, um, and the language around, you know, shooting galleries, and we're just giving, you know, people with addiction free drugs, it's not even so much about that, it's, it's, positive for the community, it reduces the harm on the community, and it engages that person in positive supports, which they often are lacking in their life. Well, sure. To bring them in to, okay, um, to a positive space. Let me... Uh,
2: just do a public service announcement for us if you or your organization would like to be a featured guest on the show please send an email to ray at miraclesinrecovery.org we will send you an information packet on how to schedule a time for you to be on the show so we can focus on what you have to bring to the recovery community
1: phone lines are open dial 866-472-5792 we'll be back in a minute.
2: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new
2: parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it
0: outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests
2: will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune in to Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
1: Hey, welcome back, everyone. Um, just a update. Next next week, we have author David Essel, who wrote Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life. And then underneath it says, but this book will. This week, we're talking to Amy Graves, and um, I think we're having a decent conversation. Before we went to break, she, she's uh, we were speaking about um safe safe places, safe spaces, safe harbor,
2: safe injection yeah, sites. Safe injection sites or whatever.
1: And I saw in the paper, uh Boston City Hospital. That's more that's the that's the mother of all hospitals in the city of Boston. That was the one where that's the that's the, the huge trauma
2: mm-hmm. hospital. Where they take everybody that's where and they, anybody.
1: Everybody and anybody that is and yeah, so I think they have 122 doctors on staff, not, not talking hospitalists, and I want to say 117 or 118 of them voted yes to have a safe shooting gallery, for lack of a better word, a safe place for addicts to go. Now, if you think back five or six minutes ago when we were talking, I was saying that an addict won't come in and share... What's going on with them, or won't sit and listen? Maybe this is the start of doing that, because you're welcoming them in to a safe place that if anything happens, yeah, you Most have them. First of all,
2: they're not going to die. Right. Second and of all, they're not you know they're going to be injected with a clean needle. Third, mm-hmm. they're going to have. If they feel like talking about, there's going to
1: be someone there. Anything you know, that's so going on,
2: there I, will be someone there who can maybe help them get yeah. into treatment or start thinking yeah. about
1: getting into treatment. And, and I think I think that is a another way to go around breaking through that they're breaking through the stigma. I mean, because you will, see, probably you'll ultimately see people from all walks of life coming yeah. in that door. I think you know will. and. I, 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 there's no cameras no you know no judgment no nothing. Yeah, and not Amy, you prosecuted. said that you they're ultimately doing that in Canada now?
3: Yeah, they've uh, loosened the restrictions on how to apply to open one of these uh services. So our federal government um we have a new federal government just in the last couple of years. I'm, I don't know how much you follow us, but before it was a conservative government, which is similar to the Republicans, and mm-hmm. they basically were tough on crime, tough on, you know, drug use and um, against safe injection or consumption services. We're not supportive of harm reduction, and so now that our liberal government has come in, they're the ones who have made naloxone accept, um, accessible to everybody, Um Increased um, harm reduction services and uh, the 911 Samaritan law. They're the ones who have enacted all this legislation as well as the safe consumption services. So they're opening up all across Canada. They even have a mobile unit that drives. Canada has a lot of rural, non city, non urban areas that are being affected. So they even have started to create mobile units that drive around to these different communities and people know what time they arrive. Um, so they can access these uh, services and hopefully become engaged and develop these relationships with healthcare professionals.
2: Are there um, a lot of these um, these places opening up now? I mean, yeah. are you seeing it all across the country? You know. Yeah,
3: almost. Well, I would say I know BC has quite a few because um, they have been hardest hit with the fentanyl and carfentanil. Um, in Canada, so they uh, opened quite a few services. Alberta has uh, has some in the works. Like, this is all fairly new. BC has had one for a while, um, but they were not across the rest of Canada. So this has just been in the last probably six to eight months where different cities and provinces have applied to open these sites, have gotten approval, and they're starting to open across across Canada.
1: Did now you, now you're any? saying now, now you're saying these sites they don't have to be medically related whatsoever. It could be like you said it's a bus pulling up into a Walmart somewhere. Or no, does it have a all, doctor? No,
3: they're all uh, facilitated by healthcare. Um okay. okay. Yeah, so they're, they're miss- all healthcare. They have, they have regulations surrounding them. It's okay. it's all government related or um, basically funded through nonprofit or but it's hired healthcare nurses, professionals. Um, who have these, and they have to go through a lot of regulation to open them. Not just anybody can do that. But
4: I think it's a good um, idea. Still, though I think it's it, yeah,
3: idea. yeah. And also, um, I don't know if you've heard the news, which has sparked a lot of controversy. Is um, Canada has just approved um, injectable uh, prescription heroin for the people who haven't responded to any other treatments, and basically like if they've tried, you know, other um, medication-assisted treatment like methadone or buprenorphine and are still using illicit street drugs like fentanyl, then a doctor under supervision could, somebody could come to a safe consumption room and instead of bringing illicit um, fentanyl or some other crazy concoction, um, be provided with clean prescribed heroin, which is... Very new. This just happened in the last week or so. So
1: well, that I think is. that's I think that's gone on in England. I think they, they th- that's happened in England for quite some time, where um, they supply their addicts with with um, morphine or heroin or something like that or synthetic heroin, um, inject injected. And, um, you know, like when you go to a methadone clinic, instead of going to a methadone clinic, you go to a, a heroin clinic and you get a needle and you get to go in a room, you inject it, and you come back tomorrow. Um, I don't necessarily know how good that works. I know methadone, when I, when I took it, it was 24 hours, and it had a 24-hour half-life on it. Heroin never lasted that yeah, long in my system. I was going to say, system. it would seem like so, you
2: would need to do it several times Yeah, a day there, there has to be something other
1: than it. heroin in that in order to be able to allow it to work for that 24 hours. Okay, but you know, really everything bad. and anything that they're trying to do to save lives I'm all for it. I mean, yeah, I,
2: we're thinking I'm, outside I'm, of the box a little right, bit. Right, like
1: I'm 28 years clean, and I would never say no to anything new or anything, oh, that's not going to work, or this isn't going to work. or What makes me say that? Why do I have to have such a fall on, let it fall on my deaf ear when, if it works for someone, there was a doctor we had on a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, if it works for someone and they have to take that pill for the rest of their life and they become productive members of society – so be it.
2: Yeah, what's wrong? You with know that? what?
1: There's no harm in that. There's no harm whatsoever. If you can become a productive member of society, it, I, I still I still carry the the addiction gene in me. I, I I prove it to myself every time I grab a bag of jelly beans or I grab potato chips or anything like that. Um, it's not heroin that I'm grabbing. But I am acting out in my addictive behavior with jelly beans because I have to eat every single one of them. So I know that it has not gone away in me. If I choose to pick up, then it's going to come back flooding crazy. I'll be, I'll be right back where I was tomorrow, 28 years ago. Um, and, you know, so if someone's addiction facilitates them taking a pill, taking a, sh- a little sheet, something underneath their tongue for the rest of their life, then so be it. I can't look down my nose at them because oh, who am I? Who am I to pass judgment on someone else when and where somebody with um, somebody has to take? for the rest of their lives. Am I going to pass judgment on them because they're because their system doesn't work like mine does? No, but morally we always look back at the drug addict and say that's wrong, it's bad behavior. Um bad choices. you stink. Yeah. Get out of my neighborhood. Go live somewhere else, and that's wrong because that's why people are dying because we're afraid to ask for help. We're afraid to well, stand we're afraid up afraid and to say, Do the
2: right thing, right? By them, exactly, or not afraid, exactly. we don't want to. It's yeah. very easy to look down on them and hate them and, and feel
1: feel better than and and look the other way, it. yeah, yep. and look and the other way and say do. it figures. You know, like, yes, and
3: then we just keep perpetuating the harm, not only to that person, but to our communities. I always found it fascinating how, for instance, in Alberta, when they had these safe uh, injection sites improved, um, certain communities that they were placed in came out protesting in an uproar that this was oh, well, going okay. to bring drug users to their community. Well, newsflash, they're already there. That's that's yeah, why yeah. they have picked those locations, because there's such high rates of needles being left on the streets. and. Um, people looking for services in that area, they don't place them in places, at least here, there's a big consultation process that happens before they choose where they're going to be placed, and they often, well, the point is to place them in the areas of most need. Um, So the reason those communities are picked are because that's where people um, have the highest rates of use, and it's actually Mm -hmm. beneficial to have them in a safe spot um, with health professionals, rather than in a on the street throwing needles on the true. sidewalk or yeah, so it's absolutely to involved that community.
1: <laughs> you know, and and the funny thing is, is when the last time we spoke five years ago, maybe on 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 another program, um, I remember saying because they were they were starting to shut down all the pill mills and they were really going after it, and I remember saying. We don't have the infrastructure to be able to handle this. And like, what do you mean? Because all of those people who are pill heads are going to need something, and all and and proof, right? The the, easiest
2: thing for them to get is heroin and what it's even. And the
1: system in Florida couldn't handle the flip of legalized painkillers versus illicit drugs, and now. Even all the even I mean, the the, the community the, the recovery community in, in uh Florida is is getting barraged because kids are coming down here and they're dying. There's no there's no real structure because people tried to help. But there was nothing in place and things were popping up. And it was really what it was, was the person who was the illicit drug dealer opened up a sober living facility yeah. because they couldn't wow. make money off the pills anymore. Yeah. So they're making it off the, yeah, off they let the them kids come that are there, They get high the sober yeah. living,
2: they die and you get more of them in. So and that's, tragic. You know, it's like, it, it's terrible. It is absolutely it's terrible. It's
3: balancing act though. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something even in, in Canada and across Canada that we're facing. It's this, there's a certain portion of the population being harmed that's exposed to prescription opioids still. That's still a huge issue. Right, but
0: right, you have right. to make
3: sure before you strip those away or change prescribing, you shouldn't even be stripping them away. People should be weaned off humanely or um, you know, engaged in treatment. Just cutting people off is not doing them any... Because they're not going to stop cause just because their prescription got canceled. They're going to go nope, to the drug dealer. No. And to have those services there, like you said, you can't simply just um, crack down and take all the prescription opioids away because it's just going to be facilitated by organized crime. And how do we steer the boat um, of people from that side and illicit side to treatment and to um, less harmful Ways of use, and even educating people who, like I said, don't want treatment. This tough love approach too. You have to have boundaries, but still, people should be educated. Don't use alone if you can, because nobody can save you <laughs> if, if you're unconscious no, by yourself. Or absolutely. you know, just just smarter way, ways of to reduce your risk. We need to have those difficult conversations, even though no, we don't we definitely want
1: to. Do. We definitely do. And we are kind of running out of time. We only have a couple of minutes left. And while we were talking, I was running through Facebook, and I came across this article. It says, humans can be vaccinated against heroin after successful trials in monkeys. So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah wow you know, what, like, what
2: is that the vivitrol so- shot I don't
1: know something. I don't even want to read it because my my disease will go well now you can go out and get high again um you know that's the that's the madness about this disease is is that the community doesn't really help you know we, we have about a minute left so is there anything that you would like to say before we sign off Amy, thank you for coming oh, just, on. For one thing,
3: no, like a big thanks to you and Alan for having me. And I always follow what you guys are up to, and it's great to have allies in the U.S. And I've gone down to Washington to the Fed Up Rally for the last three years to oh, nice. help support my American neighbors, and we're all fighting the same fight. Yes, we are. We
1: are. So, thank you for coming on the show, and it won't be five years before we call you again.
2: <laughs> Definitely not. No. Great to talk to you, Amy.
1: Okay, it was it was it was yeah. a great show, and. Um, Ellen, thank you for being in the studio again. Always love it. And as always, with Miracles in Recovery.
2: Hope is in your corner.
1: There you go. Have a good night, folks.
2: Good
0: night. Thank you for joining us this week for Miracles in Recovery.